for July 24th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 473. Teach me how to Dunkirk. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out, or watching movies, watching TV, listening to music, playing games, reading books, comics, you name it. If we like it, uh, we experience it together and we talk about it together. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and talking about Dunkirk with me uh, are Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hello. Um, spoiler alerts uh, for Dunkirk. Uh, I guess it's, I mean, it is a historical event. So like Wikipedia contains all the Dunkirk spoilers you need, but there are characters and you care about their individual fates. And, and uh, there is sort of a, a twist that happens halfway through the movie, um, though it's telegraphed in the very beginning uh, that, you know, um, you may you may want to see, uh, but also trigger warnings for the film <laughs> Dunkirk. I mean, not not uh, I, I say that not to trivialize not to trivialize um, this, but th- this film should have a content advisory. Like it is intense uh, to the to the point at times of being unpleasant. Uh, and you know what else is unpleasant? War. I'm not saying it's inappropriate, but it is uh, uh, a challenging experience. And if that is is not the sort of thing that you're up for. You, you should be warned about that. I mean, the trailer, I guess the trailer, which is uh, a bunch of soldiers standing on a pier uh, as a bomber uh, approaches. You don't see the bomber, but gradually they all look up and see it. Uh, and uh, the sound gets louder and louder and louder to the point of being deafening. And then it cuts out and the title Dunkirk comes up. Like, that was the trailer. And it's it's more or less two straight hours of that level of you know armrest gripping uh, adrenaline and uh, what other neurochemicals cortisol um, and and uh, and i 'll also say that we eschewed uh, Valerian and the city of a thousand planets, but now we sort of regret that decision, and there may be a Valerian <laughs> cast uh, in the future not 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 because of Dunkirk, we regret it because uh, the universal critical derision being heaped on Valerian means that overthinking it needs to resuscitate this movie. Um, I think, I think it might, a Pete cast may be in order. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I can guest, if I can be a special guest on the Pete (laughs) cast, I want to, you know, uh, I want to, I want to probably talk about Valerian, Valerian Mm -hmm. also, but now let's, uh, let's set sail in our small pleasure craft for the, uh, for the beaches of France to rescue some of the 400,000, uh, British soldiers. Okay, while you're in that, while you're in your butcher craft taking a day to get there, I'll be in my British uh, fighter plane, and it'll only take me one hour to get there. Yeah, this is the this is the big thing um, about the movie that it turns out that you know it's apparently Christopher Nolan couldn't couldn't leave well enough alone, couldn't leave a powerful story, his you know manifest technical excellence at at creating maintaining suspense, uh, all you know good performances from a, a pretty gifted ensemble of actors and also Harry Styles. The um, the uh, couldn't. Le- <laughs> 
couldn't leave that alone. <laughs> That's unnecessary. Harry Styles was fine. He's fine. He was good. He was a good actor. I it's, liked him. I think he has a, a future in this business. <laughs> it's almost like well, it's almost like working. Uh, it's almost like working in mask the way they're you know covered in in grime and yeah. uh, you know sand and and things and, and um, masks. Yeah. yeah, believe it or not, <laughs> the uh, the dinghy captain was actually uh, Ed Sheeran, but just in makeup, heavy makeup. He's rocking it out, and a Lannister costume too. All, all those things. Yeah. <laughs> he, he sings a, a, a sad sea shanty about lost loves. <laughs> um, that uh, the film is told in three separate time scales, and you cut between timescales, a one hour, a one day, and a one week uh, timescale corresponding with air, sea, and land uh, approaches or... Not in that order. <laughs> I said one hour, one hour. It's, it's backward. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I said hour. it backward. One hour air, one day sea, and uh, one week land. Um, and they're called uh, they're called uh, sea or like, yeah, sea, air, and the mole. So one of these things is not like the other ones, and we'll have to to figure out why. But the the um, what what you see is that you see different characters kind of cross between timelines, and when it Westworlds you like that, uh, spoiler alert, the uh, uh, you know uh, you realize you realize what's going on. Unless I don't know, did, unless someone sharper than me cottoned on before that. But here's here's the question. I mean, Pete, have you done any thinking about what this? technique added to the uh added to the story other than kind of bringing all three uh other than giving us kind of narrative time to get to know um people in all three time scales and kind of bringing them all to climax roughly at the same moment i I thought about it and i'm not sure i have the authoritative answer but i have a couple of answers the first answer that comes to mind is that dunkirk writ large to me seems to be a movie about the inevitability of death <laughs> and confronting the inevitability of death uh, and survival right so survival and the not accepting the inevitability of death but defying it right or or coming to terms with it in some way and it's interesting to see people do that on different time scales confront the question of survival in a different levels of urgency uh, I mean, they're all, it's all urgent. It, it's funny to huh. see different levels yeah. of urgency. No, no, it's no, all but I absolutely it. urgent. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the plane only has an hour. You could almost say, like, you only have a week until you die. You only have a day until you die. You only have an hour until you die. And those all are horrible things to hear, but they're slightly different horrible things. And it's sort of in the, uh, it, it's it's like Christopher Nolan is is scratching an eleven, a twelve, and a thirteen at the top of the emotional volume of his amplifier, <laughs> and is like making the small distinctions between how urgent a condemnation. <laughs> though though, is. just for that, like there actually is sort of a difference in the attitude of the the attitude of the one weekers who are like sort of frantically clinging to life. Right, the the attitude of of Mark Rylance uh, captaining the small boat, the Moonstone, um, that where he is sort of, it you can tell that he's challenged. That there are times when he considers fleeing, uh, and you know um, his uh, his passenger sort of wants him to flee, and uh, 
and then the uh, but he ultimately kind of resolves to go to uh, you know continue his mission and uh, Tom Hardy uh, in the Spitfire in the plane who I think at that moment that moment when he like sees the the bomber behind him and sort of turns around to get it he's headed back you know he's got I don't know, 15 gallons of fuel left or something like that. And he makes the decision to turn around, um, knowing that it likely means his death, right? Like that, that there is a, um, the, the question becomes crystallized, right? By making it more, by making it more urgent. And so there is like, you can sort of plot a time scale versus, uh, resignation or acceptance, um, oh, interesting. curve based on, you know that that the shorter the time scale the higher the the level of acceptance right yeah i could, you could also see it i mean i totally see that and and another way that functions is it almost feels chiasmatic like the in the sense of crossing yeah. that there's a sense of yeah that the de- the in- the urgency is decreasing while and the, the franticness i guess if you consider franticness to be a quality that's associated with uh, ur- action and urgency over time. Uh, the the franticness increases while the time allowed also increases, and so they right. they cut across each other. And there's an aesthetic beauty to that. But yeah, totally psychologically, there's a different psychology. Just the way the the way the fighter pilots deal with this situation they're in is so different. Also, because they woke up in their own beds that morning. I mean, I guess so did the so did the boat captain, but I guess his bed is probably closer to the ocean. I don't know. Well, um, yeah. So we we don't see those people waking up in their beds at the time, right? Mm. So it's maybe I don't have a perfect answer for this either. I've been really mulling over, like you know, what does the time scale add to it? And I mostly agree with you, Pete. Or I completely agree with you, Pete, that it's about the survival and the highlighting. Um, that 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 tension and the struggle around survival. Um, but I've been also thinking a lot about. Um, this structure and what it deprives us of. So in the case of the uh, the boat captain, right, in the more traditional movie, The Pleasure Boat uh, and his family, we would have seen the few days leading up to them departing from Dunkirk, and we would have um, seen their family life. We would have heard more about the other son who was killed earlier in the war, and that would have been a very different type of arc for them. It would have added a lot more material to the movie as well. Likewise, for the fighter pilots, we would have seen them, you know, like Top Gun style, broing down at the base, playing volleyball, as the Brits were wont to do in the 40s. Um, and before, <laughs> you know, before going off on their on their mission, um, we don't see those things happen. And I mean, it makes for a very lean, uh, straightforward story. And I appreciated that. It kind of just cuts away all the fat that we've become accustomed to seeing all the, the endless exposition of uh, that, that seems to be in vogue these days for no apparent reason. Um, so I appreciated that. Certainly. Um, I don't know. Does that, does that help to think about what we didn't see? Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. Go for it. A uh, character defined by action rather than by kind of this, this relentless uh, pseudo logical accumulation of backstory, which is the, you know, the cinematic universe technique, right? <laughs> yeah, there was no after credit sequence where, <laughs> uh, where the, the Battle of Britain starts. <laughs> exactly. I wonder if because because when you're saying that, Mark, I get what you're I, saying. I want to tell you about the Allies Initiative. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a question that is posed throughout this movie, but mostly at the end. 
that as to well, what is the significance of this thing that just happened? What is this Dunkirk? Is it a victory? Is it a failure? When you look at George's picture in the local paper, claiming that he's a hero when mostly he was pushed down the stairs, uh, but he was brave to go. Is that is that a, is that a thing? Is it nothing? What does it mean? There's this confusion and in inexactness about like what Dunkirk means or is what is a dunkirk and I, and one of the things you can think of in terms of the time frames is that it, it each time frame equals one dunkirk one dunkirk equals one week one dunkirk equals one day because and one dunkirk equals one hour because for the fighter pilot his dunkirk was one hour and for the 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 people on the ocean or on the channel their dunkirk was one day and so whatever the thing that it is it exists in different forms in time as well as different forms in the moral space and in the the tactical and strategic space and in the space of self-actualization and of pride and shame uh it's inter- it's interesting like it's just called dunkirk it's not called you know survival at dunkirk it's not saving private ryan saving private ryan isn't just called d-day and then walking for a bit uh, it's it's like it's there's a the the movie is about the thing that the people are trying to do, whereas you know Dunkirk the thing that people are trying to do is that they are trying to Dunkirk, uh, teach me how to Dunkirk teach me teach me how to Dunkirk everybody Dunkirk every everybody Dunkirk I'm doing a little the little Bob there um, but like a Dunkirk is an action a Dunkirk is an experience uh, and, and you know it's um, yeah maybe maybe that's part of why it's measured in time in various ways because it's measured in other ways in various ways as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, so speaking, speaking of the inevitability of death, I think this is, <laughs> <laughs> no, let's be clear Matt, Mark and I, Mark saw this movie on. So we're actually existing in three different Dunkirk timeframes also, which is <laughs> right. interesting. Well, because... yeah, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. Yeah. 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 I've, I've just... already Dunkirked Pete. I think you've just recently finished Dunkirking and Matt, you have not yet Dunkirked. <laughs> Matt is Dunkirking as we speak. Uh, and by which we mean for for in that respect, Dunkirking is watching the movie Dunkirk and then recovering psychologically from the after effects of watching the movie Dunkirk. Because, Mark, you watched it on Thursday. So yeah. it is it is like, you know, Lincoln Center three days. Right. And then I watched it late last night, and I'm a bit sleep deprived. So for me, it's uh, you know Jordan's, Jordan's furniture. I didn't get to Jordan's furniture. That's a very stupid story. <laughs> I put in direction. This is a very brief aside. Were you, were you trapped at? Were you trapped at Jordan's furniture for a week? No. No, no, no. Uh, this is actually another story about multiple timelines. So I put the directions into my Google Maps to take me to the Jordan's Furniture, which has a giant IMAX theater, 4K laser IMAX, huge screen. I was really excited. I probably would have died watching Dunkirk on that screen. And I put the directions into Google Maps to drive there. And I looked at that how much long it was going to take. And I was like, oh, no, I grossly miscalculated how long it was going to take to get there, to get to Dunkirk. And uh, and I'm going to get there after the movie starts. And I don't want to do that. So instead, I bought tickets at a different theater. Or And the friend I was going with, we bought tickets at a different theater. And we went to that theater, which was closer. Uh, but I realized after the fact, because when we started driving to the other theater, the directions guided us to a dead end that was next to a park. Uh, I realized that I had put in that I was bicycling. And that was why they, <laughs> it takes so long. <laughs> that like Google Maps, I bicycle so much now that Google Maps now defaults to me being a bicyclist or something. And so I, so my Dunkirk, my bicycling to see Dunkirk would have been a much longer period of time than my driving. If I had a helicopter, the Google Maps directions would be much shorter. 
So it's uh, but yeah, no, I saw it. I didn't see it there. I saw it at Assembly Assembly Square, and I saw it. And I saw it mere hours before the uh, mere hours before we are recording this podcast. So I actually more or less came straight from the theater to the microphone here, and uh, I'm still kind of still kind of marinating uh, in the film. So I might be thinking about the inevitability of death a, a little more. I mean, I think there's a there's a certain it's difficult to talk about about this sort of war movie as uh, as being about the inevitability of death because I would propose that our idea about de- our contemporary idea about death is different than the human idea about death that has existed for most of human history. Uh, that is to say, death is is. I mean, un- unless it's sort of sudden and accidental, unless it's accidental, uh, death by disease or old age, um, you know, can be foreseen and it can be very prolonged, right? Uh, medical, the state of the medical art being being what it is. Um, for the the outside the developed world, I suppose, and for most of human history uh death you could catch some you could catch some infection you know in the evening and be dead by morning or you know something equivalently sudden right and so that in in under those conditions a war movie seems like a good metaphor for what the experience of uh, of facing the possibility of your own death or experiencing the deaths of of people around you, people you care about, um, what that experience is like, because it could be you you know a, a screaming comes over the sky and all of a sudden all of a sudden that's it, right? Um, it's it's a different you know it's a different thing. Like we we very often at least first world like developed world uh, deaths can be um, uh, crashes uh, in in kind of car crashes in slow motion. Um, but the 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 particular characteristic of the deaths in in Dunkirk that that makes me bristle a little bit at your description, Pete. Though though I suppose I think you're right, um, is how horrible they are, right? And like how viscerally horrible the experience of them being depicted is. I get I get weird in like confined spaces. I, it is not. I, I don't like panic at the at a level of not being able to function, but I find it deeply unpleasant uh, to feel claustrophobic. Um, you know, and like the sort of claustrophobia, dark and sort of water, you know, unable to breathe sort of things are very, like, very expertly, uh, very artfully um, depicted, like, uh, portrayed in the movie. And that, like, it's a, it, it, it touches on... It just set aside the sort of the the narrative technique of ratcheting up the suspense and kind of keeping it at a very high level uh, for a long period of time. I kept looking at my watch during during the movie, not because. Uh, not because I didn't like it per se, but because I was always sure it was almost over because it felt like it had taken so long. (laughs) It felt like it had taken so much out of me up to that point. Um, And then I looked and it was like 35 minutes in, you know, like barely one third of the way through the movie. It's like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Strap in, like readjust your time scale. Uh, readjust your time scale but just the the sort of manner of death on offer here is such a 
engages such kind of primal and visceral horror uh, that it it to sort of talk about it as being a, a normative story or a story about a what what you might call an average expectable experience of death if such a thing exists. Like I I I resist something in me resists that that description though even from a kind of an interpretive point of view I I cosign uh, what you say. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know exactly what you mean, and I'll refine it because I don't think the phrase the inevitability of death has baked into it notions of normalcy and acceptance. Just normal normal mortality, right? Just yeah. just human mortality. Yeah, and I would – so – and for me, I guess I'll go to like the Downton Abbey moment as it were, which which for Dunkirk for me was not words because there's so few conversations. But, and those uh, that are converse are barely legible. Which we'll exactly. Talk about you can't understand what they're saying. But I felt like the, the symbol for me that most cued me into how I felt about what the movie was about was that whenever they were shooting ships – and they were shooting like the hulls of ships. Whenever Christopher Nolan was shooting the hull of a ship that was going by, it was very frequent, even for a small ship, to show us the operating bilge pumps. And I felt like this was a movie where the bilge pump was a highly significant symbol. Uh, and and what I mean is that the bilge pump is the pump that pumps out the water. It doesn't show you the pump, actually, like the pump operations. It shows you the, the output of the bilge pump, which is that when you're in a boat, it's not necessarily watertight from all directions. It has things like doors and windows and maybe even little cracks in the seams and whatnot. And various amounts of water get into the hull of the boat, into the bottom of it, into the bilge. And so there has to be a pump of some kind, and this goes back to ancient times, to get the extra water out of the boat so it doesn't accumulate and sink the boat. And so all – and you saw this. In the boats that would go by, they would shoot down to the water line and below, and you would see the bottom of the hull of the boat come up out of the water line, and then you would see the pumps like sp- like shooting or glugging out streams of water that were inside the boat. I remember one boat in particular, a little boat, had a stream of water coming out the back. And what that is is it's just it's draining the bilge. Uh, I was my guess. I mean, maybe I'm a little off in terms of the uh, the specific engineering of these vessels, but the sense that all the boats always had water on them, and that the movie was about pumping the water out, and the idea that in order to be uh, above the water, that is to be alive. This is a situation where you're exploring where you are constantly having to make the effort to be above the water. This is not a place where you can exist in a state of equilibrium and be alive and be at rest. This was a movie in which you constantly had to be making an effort in order to take your next breath. And that was what was being ratcheted up and that was what was being heightened. And and there's this existential quality to it, like the airplane with no fuel, uh, like the the admiral on the pier who's just letting everybody else go and is just sending ships out and sending ships out and sending ships out. Then there's this sort of expulsion uh, and projection, like you expel something and you move forward, and you expel something and you move forward. But the but the monster is always at the door, which in this case is the ocean yeah, or the channel. Right. There's there's always sort of a negotiation between the forces of life and the forces that would extinguish life. Right. And like yeah. when it's when it's operating in a normal way, it's like a ship with an operating uh, with an operating bilge pump. Right. Like which it's a, the there some water gets in, but it's at a manageable. Uh, it's at a manageable level. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, 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 well, okay, just a slight slight um, slight tangent, but not really because I think this will illuminate something about about the movie. The the soldiers seem um, uh, officers accepted. The the private soldiers seem appropriately young, uh, you know. And it's it's always good when a war movie makes you 
like kind of start and say, oh my God, they're kids. Uh, because by and large they are. And this is something that's, that's, uh, you know, by and large soldiers are, and th- this is something that's commented on by Mark Rylance, um, the, as the boat captain character, uh, w- which you later learn has something to do with the loss of his son, uh, who, who had been a pilot. Um, I I uh I I am not exactly old. I mean we we are all, you know, the overthinkers were college friends, we're all of an age. Um but uh and we're not exactly old, but we have all crossed the threshold uh past the point where you actually have to do proactive things not to hurt all the time. <laughs> Right. (laughs) You have to not sit in certain positions for too long or you have to to stretch or you have to exercise. Yeah. You know, people have it to varying and and lesser degrees. I can't wear shoes without insoles in them. Like I just buy, you know, in the supermarket, just six packs of of Dr. Scholl's insoles and and whatever shoes I'm wearing gets a gets a pair of those shoved in because, uh, you know, I can't. And this was not true of me in in younger days. And it's it's. This this sort of it it strikes me, Pete, that this that this observation is related to what you said about like the sort of the normal the normal counterbalance between uh, the the kind of operating normal operating condition of life being one where you can kind of keep the forces of death at bay, um, and that this one of the crueler ironies of war movies uh, maybe of war. Um, of you know battles fought by uh by you know uh people who are little more than little more than children who are barely aged into adulthood right is that that they are not equipped <laughs> by their life experience to understand the lesson <laughs> that you're you're talking about because they are you know in in the prime of life which is precisely the reason why they are fighting wars um it's it, you know and that like uh it definitely like the i don't know i think in in war movies it's we sort of repeat on this podcast a lot the the saw about how you can't make an anti-war movie um but but even given that even given how the eye is drawn to what is sort of forceful what is kinetic um these things photograph very well in movies uh i think you can make a movie that you know even even despite that um that predilection that predilection of film um does convey the impression that war is hell and this this is such a movie right and uh and the the i had not thought of the particular existential cruelty um that that you were describing but i think it's among the many that uh uh, you know that that characterized the uh the storytelling in this movie definitely totally I'm thinking mostly about. I mean, there's so many instances of this movie where uh, Matt, you mentioned the water, right? Water rushing in and uh, men fighting against it. But the cruel struggle, the 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 futile way in which when they're stuck in the boat that was washed ashore and then it's riddled with bullet holes, like you know, they're a they're fighting with each other, um, yep. and then b they're trying to plug the holes with their hands, and so as if somehow that would pre- prevent the water. From coming in, I don't know about you, but there was a brief moment where I thought, huh, "Would that work?" <laughs> I caught myself thinking that. I was like, "No, no, 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 no! This is so far from working that this is like, uh, like the prime, the 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 height of that uh, of example of how you know, the water is coming in, and this, this is not and not an equilibrium type of situation for for all sorts of obvious reasons." And I was thinking, yeah, throughout the whole movie, there's so many examples where water is coming in, and there's never 
a solution that is stop the water from coming in. It's always either get out or even like get the water out, but mostly get out. <laughs> right. There's not a I, I, you could tell that that whole sequence felt a little bit removed from the rest of the movie. And I think part of it is because for a, for a little while they the water was coming in and they weren't doing anything. And that's part of the horror of this scene. And that's part of what makes it scary, and that's also what makes yeah. it kind of a little bit of a break. But it's it, it also speaks to like how dumb of idea it was to begin with to get into that boat and see the obvious holes. Yeah, well, the holes weren't there yet. That's true. Yeah, the holes were shot right, shot by the German soldiers doing target practice. And it's a great example of visual storytelling because you have the one hole, and then you're like, well, you could plug that, and then there's like three holes, and it's like, well, you maybe could plug that, and then once there are like ten holes, it's like, well, now it's just ridiculous, and yet their insistence on plugging the holes remains like roughly the same uh, in all of those situations. <laughs> the the it's it strikes me now. This is another thing I hadn't thought while I was watching, but that there is a kind of four elements quality to it, right? With uh, uh, air, sea, and land, and then. And air, water, and land, I should say. Air, water, and earth. Um, yeah. And then fire in the in the very end when the oil, the uh, floating oil ignites after the bomber crashes, crashes into it. Um, and then, and, and I suppose everyone uh, involved displays a great deal of heart. So, Cap- <laughs> <laughs> so Captain Planet. You uh, take the Nazis it, down to zero? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Captain Planet is, is played by Winston Churchill. <laughs> Captain Planet, yeah, Captain Global War. <laughs> he can't stop the climate change, but survival is its own victory. <laughs> Captain Planet, he's a gesture, gonna virtue signal all the best there. Yeah, it's, it's like, well, I'm recycling. That's like the Captain Planet and Dunkirk is like, well, I'm recycling. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> hey, while we're talking about water, let's, yeah. a, a brief diversion about Christopher Nolan and his uh, and one of his many preoccupations. Right, um, drowning water. We see it uh, in um, in the prestige say, movies without women with speaking parts. Or also like. that, also that. <laughs> um, in the prestige, right? Spoilers for the prestige. Um, all the copies of the Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, um, are all drowned, and that's how he gets rid of, uh, of the evidence of the magic trick. Um, Inception with the bathtub. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that, but that, that was a water played a lot uh, in, in that movie. Um, uh, oh, Interstellar. Uh, when they land on the water planet and it's uh, it's totally uh, watery and crappy and no good. Uh, uh, this is a thing that he he's done before many times and he seems to do well. Um, so I guess it's no surprise that it's brought in, but it is nice to also bring in the other elements, as you just mentioned before. I mean, I'm thinking uh, of The Dark Knight Rises, where the people are executed by having them walk out across the ice until they plunge into the water. <laughs> That's a that. very yeah, it's a very Christopher Nolan. That's much more Christopher Nolan than Batman, now isn't it? <laughs> Is that uh that's kind of a Dunkirk situation in The Dark Knight Rises. It's uh well yeah, so but I mean, do you think it's just the horror of water? Do you think it's just that he loves something that kills people and is gray and doesn't talk much? Is that, is that what he likes? <laughs> that's what he likes about it. <laughs> What's the next story? What's the next thing he's gonna do? Is he gonna do a story about like the tsunami? Uh, is he going to do a story about somebody, I guess, rowing a boat? No. That's, that's too much like Dunkirk. What's the other thing you get where people... Is he going to do Huckleberry Finn? <laughs> Except it's, like, really harrowing, and Huckleberry Finn is, like, always falling off the raft. It's like, no, get back in the raft, Huckleberry it's, uh, Finn! Right, exactly. It's the story of Huckleberry Finn told from the point of view of the river. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's going to do Showboat. That's <laughs> what he's going to do. He's going to do Showboat, the musical. And it's just going to be Old Man River over and over again. He just but all, all Han- 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 splashing. Splashing. 
Oh. Wah, wah. <laughs> music, a uh, music soundtrack uh, to this, like Han- Hans Zimmer uh, score, super tense. I mean, did, kind of unpleasant to listen to. Very dissonant, very insistent. There were one or two moments. Actually, the one I noticed was at the the moment with um, Tom Hardy that I mentioned when he decides to die. Uh, he decides to try to attempt to um, save some people, and in so doing. Uh, Almost certainly uh, he'll die. Uh, there is a big uh, resonant consonant um, major chord. And that was one of the, the moments where I noticed something like that. So maybe when maybe you get a major chord when you uh, accept death. In, in Project Mayhem, uh, in death, you have a major chord. <laughs> um, the, well, the other uh, big moment for the major chord was when the little ships showed up. Right. It was, in fact, at that point, it was like almost so jarring. It's like, uh, is this the end of the movie? Yeah, maybe no, it's wrong. There yet. Maybe it's wrong about death. Maybe it's more about like a moment of something like heroism or a moment of personal sacrifice, where someone kind of st- where someone thinks about something other than their own survival and acts on that. Uh, you know, acts on that determination rather than yeah. that. Um, but other than that, just just super loud, kind of uh, kind of difficult to uh, kind of difficult to hear. Right? I I didn't mind it as much as you guys seem to have. But Mark, you were particularly no. right. oh about what the, the music? Yeah, the, well, no, the the sound mix in general. Well, I'll get to the sound mix in general, but the music I, I appreciated. Um, it absolutely accomplished what it set out to do, which is make you feel really uneased at un, at unease um, and and really ramp up the tension. It, it reminded me a lot of the score from The Dark Knight. Um, like maybe that's just because the the that's the Hans Zimmer Christopher Nolan score that I've listened to the most. Um, but like right off the bat, right, you hear that kind of there's just like it plays up on like droning noises and dissonance so hard. Um, and it, you, I don't know, like if you were to look dimly upon it, you could say it's a big cliche, but. Um, Again, I thought it did its job really well. Um, the sound mix overall, on the other hand, I had major issues with. Um, I don't know. It, it, I feel like a, a part of me feels like I want to like call out the emperor as having uh, you know no clothes or the emperor's new clothes as being not that or being just being very difficult to hear. Um, we complained about it a lot in Interstellar. Um, to a lesser extent, we complained about it in The Dark Knight Rises, but we could all kind of focus our attention on the Bane mask and not being able to understand what Bane was saying. Uh, in fact, we did a whole song about that. If you uh, <laughs> search the overthinking in archives on Remember Bane. Um, but yeah, it got worse in Interstellar and was particularly bad in this movie. It, it wasn't, didn't ultimately, as we mentioned before, it didn't really matter that much. The talking is not where uh, the, uh, the important stuff was in this movie. Um, but Christopher Nolan is such a reason why it's, it's, it's worth bringing up and discussing a little bit more beyond just sort of like, you know, the, the, what we have appreciated aesthetically or not about it was that Christopher is that Christopher Nolan is such an auteur or has a reputation as such an auteur in Hollywood that um, you can't help but interpret uh, this as a very specific, deliberate artistic choice as if he doesn't either doesn't want you to understand what they're saying or he intentionally is making it difficult like expects you to still be able to hear it, but it intentionally makes it difficult because somehow it feels like it adds to the storytelling. Uh, I, if I had to give him, give him credit, I guess that's where I would land in it. But uh, again, ultimately, I, I, I take issue with it. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. It seems to be I can see why he would do it on purpose. It's almost as if you have to consider your own perspective in the matter versus his and agree to disagree. Like, oh, I can appreciate why Christopher Nolan might want to make some of his dialogue difficult to hear. I still don't like it. 
<laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, you could say the same thing that he tries to make the movie difficult to follow with yeah, the nonlinear narrative. And that's just his his thing. You know, he wants to challenge you in that way. And, well, you know, so I appreciated that challenge, but I did not appreciate the other challenge. I mean, it's, I, you know, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, you can sort of Google the, the fallacy of imitative form, right? The idea that the most appropriate um, poetic expression of an idea kind of mirrors in form that idea. Uh, it's something that uh, one of my professors pointed out to me in college with uh, early and late Shakespeare plays in King John, uh, the King of wakes in kind of a disoriented state and uh, there is this very disoriented kind of disjointed fragmentary thing that he says a lot of dashes a lot of what who this I you know he interrupts himself a lot uh, whereas in in late Shakespeare in Lear um, he, Shakespeare finds uh, very you know, sophisticated poetry to express the idea of the disjointedness. Um, the the representation is not disjointed, even though the the thing being represented um, or the the thing being sort of dealt with, the experience being dealt with, is disjointed. And it's it's much more profound and much more artistically successful. So the idea that like in order to what to sort of thrust you into the action. Right, like you have to be disoriented, like the characters are disoriented, um, is is false, right? It's it's an aesthetic choice, and it it has, uh, but it's not the only, it's not the best or only way, right? Or even I forget the action scenes for a moment, just the uh, the exposition scenes where like uh, you know the army commander guy and uh, Kenneth Branagh, the the navy commander guy, they're uh, talking in hushed tones about. The situation and their strategy and all these things and there were definitely a bunch of words there where i didn't make out and was that necessary i mean mark let's be let's be let's give credit where credit is due i mean kenneth branagh is known as a mumbler who doesn't enunciate in his parts on film <laughs> <laughs> like feature when he was feature not a bug huh like when he was in hamlet yeah when, when he was, was in, yeah when he was doing the the oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, the saint christmas you're being, you're being sarcastic aren't you i, I can't Just to believe, be clear yeah i'm being extreme like okay. when he, when he was riding the spider wheelchair in Wild Wild West and just lending a whole bunch of ambiguity to the words that he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is that? What is the last? It's the last. Um, the last line before the intermission in Hamlet. I mean, obviously, the intermission isn't written in Hamlet. Is it my thoughts be blood? What is it? Oh, Matt, you must know this. Yeah, it's from this time forth. It's so he just has seen the players act out the Hecuba, the the sack of Troy and the uh, the uh, murder of Hecuba or the the. Yeah. And and um, he Hamlet, it's one of the the big soliloquies. He says, you know, well, this this it's it's terrible. I'm a terrible person because this actor can get all worked up over this imaginary thing. And I, who have cause to actually be very worked up, um, don't. (laughs) (laughs) And what is the exact line Uh, from this time forth? My thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Yeah. So in the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, the monologue by the player is given by Charlton Heston and Kenneth Branagh like bellows it with arms outstretched. <laughs> so, no, Kenneth Branagh is not a mumbler. I think that is a fair, a fair, uh, fair judgment on his acting style. That is for there, sure. He there's is a, a guy there's a guy who can clip a consonant, can <laughs> cl- clip a consonant and elongate a vowel. Right. 
He's no Avery Gentlemen Brooks. Gentlemen of England, now a bed. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly him. Yes. So think themselves like <laughs> You oh. merely adopted St. Crispin's Day. I was born in <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous? Is this where we talk about Tom Hardy wearing a mask in this movie? Again? Yeah, I mean, I, many people, myself included, have noted on the internet that Christopher Nolan has got to be trolling us at this point by putting Tom Hardy and his uh, remarkable face and voice behind a mask in the second of his movies, right? Uh, it's. It, I think he's messing with us a little bit, uh, and again, it speaks to this whole notion of uh, obscuring, uh, obscuring dialogue as further advancement of his artistic project, which we seem to not to, not to buy as a as a necessary effective tactic. It, I just remember when that first trailer came out with Bane in it, and the hue and cry went out all over the internet that nobody could understand anything that Bane was saying, and then there was this like emergency redub that I think happened or something like that. Yeah, because I think that yeah they like emergency redubbed all of his dialogue, and it still was ridiculous. But this idea that like. Uh, that you can go so far in the direction of being stylish in the confidence that you are one of the best that you can then come to fail at some basic task. It reminds me of when I was a kid and uh, Ricky Henderson used to play the outfield for the New York Yankees. And my dad always used to make fun of Ricky Henderson because he was convinced that Ricky Henderson used to catch the ball. And I'm motioning with my hand now. Imagine my hand almost as if I'm uh, like with my my index fingers facing me and my thumb facing forward, right? Almost as if I'm holding up a skull that I'm talking to, like I'm like I'm Hamlet, but I'm turning it away from me. Uh, him holding his baseball mitt like this and then grabbing the ball and doing it with such a plumb that he like slaps his hand down by his side in a flourish and then drops the ball on the ground. Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is what my dad always used to make fun of Ricky Henderson for doing. I don't know if Ricky Henderson ever did it, but this is like the all time stolen bases leader. Right. Like a guy who is by all accounts quite good at baseball. But uh, <laughs> but the idea that you can get so stylish at the thing you're trying to do, like, isn't it the, the initial job of people behind a camera to make sure that like images and sounds are captured in some sort of medium? That can be transmitted so that we can watch them and listen to them. Hmm. It's sort of like naming streets with really long names that have lots of consonants and no vowels because you're trying to make a point. But then nobody knows where anyone lives or where the mail goes. And it's a problem. Right. Uh, that side of thing. Yeah. What uh, do you mean you never heard of Street? Everybody's been there. If you came, it would be very painful. <laughs> for you. <laughs> um, but while we're on the technical aspects, I saw it in uh, 70 millimeter film. Um, I didn't get to, I nearly drove an hour to see it in IMAX. And I kind of wish I had, like if you're going to be emotionally pummeled, pummeled it may as well be, you know, in the most, uh, the most aesthetically breathtaking way. But I, you know, I reacted generally positively to the film. Uh, I feel like the images are sharper. Um, the, the generally brighter and you see this is something I know to be true of film from talking to cinematographers about it that you see deeper into the blacks you can resolve more darker shades rather than it kind of fading away into a murky miasma and and uh, Christopher Nolan is a guy who likes him some murky miasma and so like the idea uh, the idea that you can see you can resolve a lot of detail in the dark sections of the frame especially in a movie like this um, 
was uh uh, with all the underwater stuff and the stuff inside the hull of the boat and things like that was uh, was uh, useful to me. There's there was also like in quiet moments um, of the film, like there there are maybe even just at the end, but there are a couple places where the the soundtrack d- drops out entirely. Hearing the rattling of the projector behind you is is a just a neat thing at this point it's a it's sort of like being in a, a historical reenactment or something like that right that that uh this sort of analog piece of a, a, a clip the, the projector snarled and rattled rattled and snarled you know and there's something uh there's something cool cool about that but i gather mark you didn't like it as much yeah well i i, I will um accept all the, the high points that you mentioned there and the and particularly the 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 blackness right i'm thinking of uh, the various scenes where uh, that is or the particular scene where their boat is torpedoed and there's flames right the the highlight the highlights and the blackness the shadow the black uh, of the night and of the ocean and the contrast of that was uh, it was uh, aesthetically pleasing for sure um, but the thing that I noticed uh, most when I uh, as soon as the movie started to play was a strobing a flickering effect and maybe that was um, uh, poor execution on the part of the projectionist at my theater. Um, but I, it immediately took me out of the movie. It made me hyper aware of like, oh, wait, this is 70 millimeter. This is film. This is not the usual crystal clear, uh, smooth, pristine digital projection that I'm getting. And I couldn't quite shake that um, for the rest of the experience. Like it was bright and dim and bright and dim in rapid succession. Yeah. Huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 exactly. Interesting. Feature, not a bug? No, that's, no? that's no, something no, 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 that, no. yeah, it's, that's something that should be... So, you know, it's probably a timing thing in the projector. I don't know. I I don't know as much about it as I like because I really I really enjoy getting into the when I have the opportunity to get into the nitty gritty of this uh, of this stuff. You know. So yeah. there's, there's oh go ahead. No 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 Pete take away. So I was going to say there's a concept in car driving and motorcycle racing and such that I think is interesting to think about in terms of the technical execution of this movie, which is the idea of driving at the limit. Right, which is when you're driving a car and you're going around a corner fast, every given car, given the grip of its tires, given its the power of its engine and its chassis and its weight, there's going to be a, a place where you lose control of the car, where the car can't do what you want it to do. And that's over the limit. And there, it's a widely held belief that driving a car at its limit is fun and exciting and also only for experts, but that there are cars that have a lower limit that thus they don't go as fast and they aren't quite as treacherous or maybe their grip isn't quite as good and so they skid out easier. But you might want to drive a slower car at its limits uh, just because it's fun. If you're on a racetrack, don't do it on an actual road. Uh, it's interesting to think about what like making film and, and, and any kind of theatrical or performative art is going to is going to be have the possibility to ride some sort of limit. And what is the limit? So if you're thinking of a John Williams score for something like Star Wars, he might be trying to push the limit of the orchestra and the trumpets, right, to really be clarion and and forceful and, and just hit those those fifth intervals as with as much vigor as you possibly can. He might be writing for the limits of the orchestra, or you might be writing for the limits of what you might be making a movie for the limits of the computer that you that can handle it. Uh, and I think about something like Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo was like at the limit of the time. And there's a certain thrill of being at the limit, pushing it to the limit, as it were. And I and I thought for Dunkirk, Dunkirk is a movie that is made at the limit of the movie theater. 
it, it seems to play the movie theater like a musical instrument and the different uh, varieties and formats of it that came out. And this is my experience seeing it in the third row of a regular IMAX theater where, you know, the sound was was cacophonous in the extreme and the image was huge. It just seemed like it couldn't be any more in the room that I was in than it was. That was the maximum mm. amount that this theater could handle, as opposed to the maximum amount that he as a filmmaker could handle, which would probably be more. Probably just like a shrieking whale that just intermittently intersperses with flashing bright white light that burns your eyes out in darkness. Like, he could do that for yeah. himself. Actually, nowhere, the, the nowhere next, could display it. The next Christopher <laughs> Nolan project is going to be the fourth Star Trek movie, and it's going to be about whales. <laughs> Uh, the fourth, the fourth reboot. Oh, that's so perfect. Oh, and it just that... start. It just starts with Spock just wailing. Just yeah. and it's just like a twenty hey, minute but... scene of cutting open the side of a whale. And there'll be a lot of water too, so it all yeah. really oh, comes together. There it is. That's so strength. Yeah. Oh, so, so Pete, I'm glad you mentioned you. You brought this up because uh, Christopher Nolan is on record as saying that this movie is like virtual reality without the goggles. Like he was really going for this immersive experience and the way to do that is to push the theatrical experience to the limit right sight and sound working in concert to just well to what is the word used earlier pummel <laughs> to pummel you into submission yeah there are very few like there always is sort of a point of view of the camera right like it's not you you don't enter the world of the characters like the camera isn't a tool for identifying with the characters in this movie there's always some very visceral like boats shot from the waterline or from high above right like out outside the cockpit look looking sort of over the shoulder or like kind of inside the cockpit at hip level at like tom hardy's hip level these like hard hard shots to get and i think there was some like technical uh, I, like uh, you know, p- periscope lenses or th- or things like this that that um, were developed to to get some of these um, to get some of these angles, and it goes to this idea of um, goes to this idea of pushing pushing the limit. Uh, yeah, um, that and that like just the 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 idea of even given you know what 4k projection which i guess is the norm in digital digital projectors there's now a new digital imax projection uh that's like laser light um yeah that was what i was gonna go see at the jordan's furniture it's the only one in the area yeah yeah. that's (laughs) and that's that's new that's apparently like you know, I, we've done this on the podcast before, haven't we? Right, like a traditional IMAX is a sixty. You, it's uh, exhibited on seventy, but shot on sixty-five millimeter film, turned sideways, so that you get a square image, kind of the, almost the shape of a television screen. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot more square than a, than you think of like a widescreen movie being, and it's like fifteen sprocket holes on uh, on a piece of 70, 70 millimeter film run sideways. Uh, normal seventy millimeter is run up and down. Down, it's five sprocket holes, um, and I guess they shoot on sixty-five to exhibit on seventy, and uh, just that—that that physical. I mean, set, hold your finger and thumb seven centimeters apart. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of space for a, a, a film negative or like a, for a piece of film. Like there's a lot of information that is encoded in that. And when you think of it as IMAX, like there's just a lot of information um, in that, in that physical frame. And this is, a, a, I think another aspect of kind of limit, 
pushing the idea that it's almost a romantic or a sentimental idea that you could kind of cram more image in, you know, that like given, given, uh, that, that, that for a given screen size, right. Exhibiting on, you know, uh, regular digital projection, new IMAX digital projection, 70 millimeter or IMAX 70 millimeter, like for a given, um, resultant dimension, you actually could get a higher density of information in, and that would lead to some kind of, um, in, in a quasi mystical way, right. To say to a more immersive, uh, experience in, in the film or a kind of more, a more captivating, a more kind of totally absorbing experience in the film. It's, it's, it's kind of poetical. Like it's hard not to smile at that for me because it seems, um, because it's so obviously false, right. (laughs) But, uh, but also because it's, there's a kind of romanticism to that. That's not, um, an impractical romanticism that, that it's hard not to be won over by. Impractical romanticism is a great way to think about it, right? Especially in contrast to uh, the much more assembly line approach to cinema, which you see in, say, like the Marvel movies, right? Um, uh, maybe that's a bit of a straw man or not a fair, quite a fair comparison to make to put up Dunkirk against even the best entries of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Spider-Man Homecoming or uh, Iron Man 3. Um, but every aspect of the movie, music, uh, color, pacing, characters, uh, everything is so, so different. Such a radically different movie-going experience that you almost wonder, like, you know, is this even in the same ballgame? I think I think a great example, a time when Dunkirk gets a little bit close, but it's still so different than another movie, is when we find out that the ship captain, the little dinghy captain's son, was a fighter pilot and that's why he knows how the fighters work and then there's a shot of peter the son i remembered his name because it's mine a shot of this of peter next to collins the fighter pilot and you and you notice just by looking at them that they look very similar to each other and you recognize that Collins probably looks a lot like this guy's son who died and that that's that this is it's a big part of his arc is the it's not even an arc for the character it's an arc for us like the peripatia of 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 us of like our moment of recognition of realizing that the reason that this ship captain is so intent on going back to Dunkirk is because he couldn't have saved his son and now he wants to save all these others for it if it were a Marvel movie it would have been like Robert Downey Jr. looking at him and saying like and you kind of look like him Right. Like you would have had that moment where we would have said, like, you remind me of him. But in this movie, like it's not even said. It's just like suggested in a shot that lasts for like a second. And then we move on, even at the point where it gets closest to being sentimental. There's still so much that is it's like it's not that it's wordless versus worded. It's that it's not even worth saying. It's so it's it's sort of on the edge of what the movie is willing to indulge in in terms of sentimentality in that respect. Well, I think that's Uh, also I mean, it's British. Right. Like it's an mm-hmm. English. He's he's English. I think he's English that the, the um, he might be some other flavor of British. But um, uh, right. And and there's this sense of sort of reserve of stiff upper lip of sort of not indulging in sentimentality. And this this uh, like this is almost a little bit. This is almost like a modern national epic uh, with this quality of sort of never, 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 never. Uh, never give up. I, you know, it strikes. It, there, there have been a number of of very awful um, 
uh, things happening in London recently, and I I actually uh, remember going back to the the transit bombings. Um, a while back um, that whenever London well, Londoners were interviewed in news footage they they were always talking about no stiff upper lip this is the city that survived the blitz right like uh, the reserve kind of keep calm and carry on right like in that that ethos um, whereas the uh, the the uh, Avengers the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is the product of an American culture that is a lot more um, a lot more demonstrative, shall we say, a lot more sort of emotionally operatic than the uh, than you know authentic English culture seems to be, right? My my favorite moment in this regard, and it, even and I can totally see how it's associated with the national identity. I think we can also say that it's specifically associated with this movie. It's it's a, a claim that this movie is making about the national identity, and it's something that's characteristic of the movie. Uh, the end of the movie, when there's they there's a seems to be choices made to deliberately frustrate the, a sense of celebration that might naturally emerge from the main conflict of the movie having been resolved, uh, right? Like uh, when Harry Styles and and Tommy, he who squints and needs to poop, are on the train, um, and, and there's the guy outside that's trying to congratulate them and wave at them, and they won't look at him, and the camera won't even really look at him, and he's kind of leaning into frame. Uh, you know, we were talking about this. The movie doesn't look at the characters and show the characters reacting in a way that is supposed to inspire our reaction. There's not that sort of mirroring that's happening. Um, but I love how the gesture that finally gets their attention is holding the beer in front of the window. <laughs> that, right. that we, we we're not we're not emotionally equipped to congratulate each other directly by talking to each other and expressing how we feel. But the beer is symbolic of that kind of gesture that we might make by having that conversation. Uh, and then that that gets also gets sort of tragically mirrored in the blind man who doesn't can't look anyone in the eye <laughs> isn't that sort of what we're saying is happening emotionally to a degree is that there's a, a man who suffered a horrible trauma and because of the heart i mean did you guys come out away with it with that assumption that the man at the end who is giving people the uh t-shirts for finishing the 5k uh <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and was congratulating them okay 10k it was good shot yeah right that. yeah exactly <laughs> half marathon for some of them right like it's a it's a half marathon a 10k and a 5k all on the same course uh yeah. <laughs> told in three time scales um yeah. and he's saying good job or well done lads well done good job uh and the and and he says uh, all, all we did was he says all we did was survive, uh, yeah. and th- that's enough, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he put, so, yeah. and he puts his hand on on Tommy's face. It's his name, right? Tommy. I'm just, I'm just calling him that. And, and you realize he's blind. And then Harry Styles later says he didn't look even look us in the eye. Did you guys extrapolate from that that he was a World War One veteran who'd been blinded in a gas attack? Yeah, or that, something that he like was that? blinded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that he was now volunteer. He was doing like a USO kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like in volunteering to uh, 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 to support the to support the boys, right? And that's there's sort of, a difference yeah. between the American sentimentality. Our USO act is Captain America, and the Brits <laughs> act is a blind dude <laughs> who's gassing World War One. Oh. Well, it's that you've been injured badly in the past, and the nature of your injury impinges upon your ability to emotionally connect with people in the present. 
um, it's, it's sort of the uh, the the symbol there or part of the symbol there. Right. And, when, and um, but he touched I mean, he touches it sort of affected it, but not extinguished yeah. it entirely. Like his sort of desire to touch Tommy's face and kind of see him with his hand uh, and that like to have that sort of moment of communion you know, you're like me, you know, I identify with you, you know, is, uh, is, uh, yeah, is powerful, but that's as far as it goes. Again, it's like, it's nice in some of these, uh, in some of these moments that it's not, it's like, uh, it's like the point is made. It doesn't need to be uh, italicized and highlighted. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example of that, since we're talking about the end of the movie is the, uh, the, we shall fight speech at the end, right? A, a much more straightforward movie, would have dressed up, oh, I don't know, Gary Oldman <laughs> as Winston Churchill <laughs> to deliver that speech or even just like, you know, pulled the uh, the the actual recording of it off of the shelf. But instead they had uh, one of the soldiers, um, Tommy, is that what we're calling him? Sure, Tommy, uh, reading it from the newspaper in his own voice. And I think that's a good symbol there of like, you know, the movie uh, having its sentimentality cake, but eating its like, you know, uh, uh, more artistic. Or at least, yeah, at least temper- tempering it a little bit. Like not, I-, I think Pete's right when he says resist the urge to resist the urge to triumphalism, right? And kind of temper temper the sense of like achievement and like success that you may have had uh, having um, having had the main conflict of the. Uh, conflict of the movie resolved. The you know we will fight them on the beach. We will fight them in the air. Uh, I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I am. Uh, all right. It might be. It might be uh, time to leave. Wait, can, it th- can, oh, can I just check in one one last thing? Because well, there's no there's no good segue for this. Okay. No good segue, and it's also one of the last things you see in the movie. The name of the boat. Is Moonstone. Oh right, <laughs> and Moonstone. I Moonstone is a gem that is associated with a fair amount of lore and magical quality and alchemical quality and ancient uh, kind of pagan religions and and other sorts of spiritual practice and and the occult attributed to it various qualities. And I just wanted to point out that Moonstone is the stone of travelers. It's the stone that keeps travelers safe. Uh, Moonstone is the stone of feminine energy. So we do, in fact, have a woman in the Christopher Nolan movie that has no lines. It is the boat. Uh, it is the feminine energy of the Moonstone boat it is, that it is, is protecting everyone. Yeah. The vessel of life. Uh, Moonstone is also a stone of transformation and the stone of werewolves. Uh, and so this idea of, <laughs> of change and travel and love and being kept safe. But also, you know, there's a sense of sacrifice and the sense of change and a sense of the passage of generations. And it was interesting for me that that was the sort of softest note that and the jam on the bread <laughs> and the tea that was being offered to everybody that there was a sense of comfort and this was all associated with the idea of home but this sort of return to the mother or the mother will carry you or the home is here uh it was all kind of related i just wanted to, to bring that out because if there was a gem lore reference in this movie and we didn't get it to you i feel like we failed as overthinking it so i want to make sure that we cover uh, our bases there there also and i'll put a link to this the other boat name i noticed was mimosa yeah, I saw that too. And uh, the, gem, I, the gem lore for Mimosa is that it's girls' night. <laughs> anyway, no, bottom, yeah, no, they're bottomless. Yeah, it's bottomless brunch. Um, Do the boat have no bottom? Does that mean the boat can sink? <laughs> it's uh, well, it you know, as a like a pleasure cruiser, like that's a you know, that's an understandable name for uh, 
um, for something like that. Anyway, Mimosa, if you stay to the end of the crawl, they actually used several of the real Dunkirk little ships. Like, uh, uh, they actually oh, used wow. the, the actual uh, little ships that made this. So, uh, Mimosa is a uh, motor yacht, 48 foot. Uh, uh, 48 foot length and it's, I'm looking for a uh, boat year 1935 and uh, it appeared, the actual mimosa was the mimosa in the um, in the film. I'll put a link to the Association of Dunkirk Little Ships into the show notes and you can uh, you can watch, you can uh, go read all about mimosa. Alright, with that just checking to see if I'm to get interrupted. No, with that, we leave, uh, we, uh, we let us ride, leave the beach. Yep. Let, let us leave the beach. Let us ride the train, uh, uh, back into the heart of our homeland. Uh, and hopefully, uh, some listeners will uh, tap on the window with beers for us weary overthinkers who, who have, uh, who have safely made our way out of this podcast. Thanks very much for listening to this overthinking podcast on Dunkirk. Thanks very much to Pete Fenzel and to Mark Lee for podcasting with me. I'm Matt Rather. We will be back next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It it probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. In a way, isn't World War II the greatest of all cinematic universes?